we've probably hammered it in the ground, the ransomware's a problem. That is the first big problem you want to try and fix. And the biggest gap seemed to be where are their backups? So all three components start to work together, the people, the process, and the technology of Arctic Wolf, VCSO, and disaster recovery and backup as a service. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Welcome. Welcome to Howl at Ransomware by InterVision Systems and Arctic Wolf. We are so excited that, that you are here with us tonight. Um, the, the evening is, we're gonna network, we're gonna have some great food, some drinks, some great conversation. We're gonna record in just a few minutes a live episode of Status Go. It's an internationally recognized podcast produced by InterVision. Hopefully you've all listened to at least one episode Anybody? Anybody? A few of you. Well, after tonight, you'll have to listen because you'll hopefully be a part of it uh, as, we're, as we're doing this. So um, Status Go is a podcast for digital leaders, IT professionals, and, and those that aren't in IT but f find themselves leading digital enterprises. Uh, it's for those people that want to break out of the status quo hence the play on words of status go. So we hope that you'll tune in. Now, before we get going, I gotta say how freaking cool this is to be up here on this stage at the Vogue Theater in Indianapolis. See, those from Indy, they know, right? The, the bands that have been up here, uh, just amazing. Heck. The bands that I've seen sitting out there where you are, you know, everywhere from uh, Muddy Waters, the blues legend, uh, local band Pushed Down and Turn, the Ramones, uh, Meatloaf. I mean, some of the greatest names have graced this stage. It is so cool. And, and those of you that know me, uh, when I was a kid, I was an aspiring rock star, right? Aspiring, no talent, just aspiring. So to be up here on this stage, and, and believe it or not, I'm not the first ton to be on this stage. My son Brad was a hip hop artist about 15 years ago by the name of Brad Real, and they did a show here at the Vogue. So look him up. You can find his music on Spotify and YouTube. Um, but, how, I mean, it's just so freaking cool to be up here. So, I'm Jeff Tun. I'm a strategic IT advisor for InterVision. I have the honor and privilege of hosting their weekly podcast, Status Go. It is the most fun, I think, that I have ever had in my career. Uh, to be able to talk to so, such amazing people. And we've got a great program for you tonight as we record this. Howl at ransomware. Howl at ransomware. Ransomware is scary. With a click of the mouse, your business can be destroyed. Now, I hate those scare tactics, and that's not what I'm trying to do. But think about it. All your preparation, all your planning, all your investments in protecting your business and protecting your data, gone with the click of a mouse. Statistica.com reports that in 2022, there were over 236 million ransomware attacks in the first six months. 236 million. If you've not been attacked, you probably know somebody that has, and you could be next. Heck, I got a call yesterday from a, a business that is looking for help 
to recover from a ransomware attack. It happens all the time. It's big business. You can go on the dark web and you can buy a ransomware attack kit and launch a ransomware attack. Heck, you don't even have to buy the kit. They have ransomware as a service. You can pay somebody to launch the attack for you. It's that easy. So we've assembled a panel of experts tonight, and we're going to talk about ransomware from maybe a different perspective, a different angle than you've heard in the past. We're going to look at it from the financial perspective, the costs. What are the true costs uh, that organizations face when they've been attacked? whether they pay the ransom or not. What are the costs to protect your data and to be able to protect it, detect the, the, the issues, and respond and recover the data? We're gonna talk about how to manage those costs more effectively using the as-a-service model that is so popular in tech today. And we're gonna talk about the benefits beyond this cost savings for an as-a-service model when it comes to protecting your data. With that, I'd like to bring out our panel. And so as they're taking the stage, they're back enjoying the, the green M&Ms in the green room back there. Um, I want you to know that I've developed a list of questions for our panelists, but we do want to hear from you as well. So uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to come down there with the microphone and, and run around, and if you have questions, uh, then you can ask our panelists those questions uh, when that time comes. So, instead of our normal introductions, I want to do something a little bit different tonight. Um, I'm going to pose a question to each of the panelists in turn and have them introduce themselves, you know, name, rank, serial number, maybe how long you've been in the cyber business, and then answer the question. Now these questions that I'm starting with are foundational because I find it very important that when we're using terminology that we're all on the same sheet. So some of them you may hear sound fairly basic, but I think you'll probably learn something even in those foundational questions. Alan, I'm gonna start with you, buddy. Uh, our audience tonight includes CEOs, COOs, CFOs, CIOs, maybe a CDO or two, so a wide variety, and other IT and senior leaders. We've all heard ransomware, but do we really all know what it is? So, Alan, if you don't mind introducing yourself, and then what is ransomware? Sure. So, thanks, Jeff, and thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, I would like to start with saying not many events that I get to speak at have a disco ball. So this, is, this may be just a tad distracting. Um, so my name is Alan Jenkins. I am the uh, Chief Information Security Officer for InterVision. So I have to care about keeping us safe. I also lead our cybersecurity consulting team. And we do uh, that sort of work, working with our customers to help them. Uh, what I like to say is we try to consult with them to keep bad things from happening. And uh, one of the bad things that has been happening a lot in the last couple of years is ransomware. Uh, now, I knew this question was coming because we talked a little bit along with the M&M discussion as well. And uh, what I'd like to start with, honestly, is what's important about cybersecurity? What does that really mean? Because I bet if we ask a bunch of people, we get a bunch of different answers. And I'd like to start there, and then I'll, I'll answer your question. But uh, to me, one of the most important things is to understand what we're really trying to do in a cybersecurity program. And I like to start with something called the CIA triad, which is we really need to care about the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of data. And what confidentiality means, in a nutshell, is can the right people and only the right people get access to my data? Integrity means, is my data good? Can I trust my data? And then availability means, can I get to my data and use it when I need it? 
And what ransomware is, is it's an availability compromise. When I try to go use my data, I can't. Now the mechanics that make that work is it's really software under the covers that lands onto a computer and it encrypts or locks your data. So your files or your databases so that you can't use them anymore. So then what, it, what makes that happen is it's an encryption key. Now what the bad guys want you to do is pay them money and then they'll give you a decryption key that will allow you to use that. So their motivation is financial and it's very, very painful. And we do a lot of work with people to try to put steps in place to keep that from happening. Uh, we also have done a lot of incident management, so we also have seen when bad things do happen, what the steps are that we've got to use to put those things together. So really the answer to your question is what is ransomware? Ransomware is bad. <laughs> Thank you for that. So uh, Isra, we talk a lot about NIST. I know InterVision talks a lot about NIST, and I know Arctic Wolf does as well. We've talked a lot about it on the podcast Status Go. So as you introduce yourself, who is this NIST guy, and what are the five pillars of the framework? All right. Well, thanks, thanks everybody, for having us. Uh, my name is Israel Sron. I lead our systems engineering team or sales engineering team at Arctic Wolf. Um, when it comes to NIST, um, it's a governing body essentially that uh, has uh, a handful of frameworks. Um, one of them is the cybersecurity framework or sometimes referred to as CSF. And the CSF uh, is probably talked about most often because it's probably the broadest framework out there. And really what it is, is it, it encompasses five different pillars that if, if met or if accomplished, uh, represent a fully functioning cybersecurity program. So it allows you to really break down what cybersecurity is into like five key pillars, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, and really you know, focus on, or programmatically focus on the different aspects of the framework so that you can apply that to your own security program. Excellent. Identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Awesome. Correct. Awesome. Adam, as you introduce yourself, some may not be familiar with the as-a-service model. We, we hear a lot about that today, but can you tell us what is the as-a-service model? Thanks, Jeff, and thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, my name is Adam Scamahorn. I am the product director for our business continuity services at InterVision. I've uh, been doing disaster recovery and incident response of some kind from an engineering perspective into product leadership over the last decade. So as a service model is the idea that all of the pieces that you need from a people, a process, and a technology standpoint are solved in one solution, right? And so specifically where I started in disaster recovery as a service, the idea is that rather than having to put my DR site in a place and build the equipment and do all the replication, perform all of the testing, fail everything over, fail it back, um, build processes and procedures around that, design my playbooks, you have a team of people that do all of those things for you and work as an extension of your team. Then as we build other things that have that as a service moniker, it's really the idea of having a white glove solution around the people, the process, and the technology that builds in efficiencies that save you money. And we're going to talk later about the advantages of using the as a service model when it comes to ransomware protection. But I, I love the comment you made about becoming an extension of your team because that's really, that really says a lot. Now, I want to start off here by talking about the evolving threat landscape. And Adam, this is something I know you and I have talked about a lot over the last couple of weeks. What does today's threat actor look like? Why are, why are they doing what they do? 
Well, I think Alan touched on this a little bit during his, uh, you know, introduction is the number one reason someone would be a threat actor, specifically when it comes to ransomware, is financially motivated, right? So you've got other motivations that happen along the lines of uh, reputation. You have cyber gangs that just want popularity and they want to say, hey, I hacked Microsoft or I hacked whatever big name they can throw at that, right? And then you've got people who are cyber activists. They want to make a point. They're doing something to do damage to make a point. But the number one reason is absolutely financial. The Verizon um, data breach investigation report this year actually did a whole financial model on uh, how to be a successful threat actor and um, very easily showed that you know you could build a pipeline of opportunities by buying components to perform attacks and make a significant amount of money and they they basically showed a business model where you can make six hundred thousand dollars a year as an individual so <laughs> that's, a, that's a that's a good payback uh 600k wow wow so alan in israel what changes have you seen in the threat landscape in the last couple of years so i'll, I'll jump in first um i think to to dovetail on top of what you know adam was saying is it, it, the reason these people want to attack your money for the most part uh what we see as change is the ways that we run information technology systems, right? So if we go back 10 or 15 years ago, everything was on-prem, everything was in our bunker, we could put fences around it, we could firewall it, we could protect it the way that we want. Fast forward to today, cloud computing has changed that. So I can put my data in a number of different clouds uh, and I can make some assumptions that the cloud provider is providing the security service, which is a bad assumption, by the way. Um, and I can uh, you know, assume that I don't have liability for that, which I see a lot of people do. Um, also, things like mobile devices have meant not only do I pick up my data out of my protected bunker and data center and move it somewhere else, now I've also taken the ability to use this device and access that anywhere and on wireless networks that may or may not be protected. So the changes in how we access and use data just open up more opportunity for these smart threat actors to attack us. And I think one of the key things, and I think Israel will touch on this, is understanding who your threat actor is and who they are not. Well, I mean, I think those are really good points. And um, really understanding who that threat actor is, um, you, I think that's evolved even in the last couple of years. It, I, I think there, there was a point in time where there was a lot of focus on state-sponsored threat actors, and, and rightfully so, and I think that's still a, very much a threat. But if you look at... Adam, you mentioned the, the Microsoft breach and like the recent Uber breach. Some of these really high-profile breaches in the last few months or even a couple of weeks, those were teenagers. When you talk about like some of these groups like the Lapsus group, I mean, it's 17-year-old kids out of the UK that you know, were curious. You know, they had access to tools and you know, it, they leveraged people. They leveraged um, you know, readily available tools, um, access to people that um, really didn't know any better, maybe weren't equipped to um, really defend their organization properly. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I think we've all been in technology for a long time now, and it's really interesting to, to Alan's point to see how far technology has come but also just see how far behind organizations still are. Because I feel like the technology is there, but organizations just haven't been able to properly, still properly defend themselves. You'll see, we see a lot of times where organizations have all the tools in place, but they're still getting breached and we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've got a question for the group. Since we want to talk about the financial aspects 
um, and it's why many of the folks are here tonight. What are some of the costs of an attack, of an attack itself, that, that our, our audience should be thinking about? Anybody, I'll toss it out to anybody, whoever wants to go first. Well, I guess I'll jump in first. Uh, again, we, I and my team have run an incident management team, so we've been in the middle of a lot of these events in the last couple of years that have been pretty nasty. And you know, some of the, the attack methods you know, that have changed and, and updated things make it really interesting for us to be able to, to figure out how to respond to these things. So um, I'm trying to think of exactly how I want to, because I don't want to expose anybody's critical data. Uh, but if you think through what happens in a scenario, one of the very first things that, that we get asked is, who should I call first if this bad thing happens? And that depends a lot of the time, but honestly, one of the first things you should do is call your insurance company, your cyber insurance provider. And one of the things there is they're the people who are gonna pay the bill for any sort of recovery, any sort of forensics. So oftentimes they need to be involved from the beginning to approve how these monies get spent. Now, how the monies add up uh, beyond maybe you pay the ransom, maybe you don't, and that can be another question or discussion point, uh, but that can be a cost. The cost of actual recovery so the time that it takes, the people that it takes to do the recovery, uh, and then things like forensics, legal uh, needs to be involved. Uh, all those things add up and they add up quick. And typically these events don't happen and they are gone within a day or two. Typically these things go on for a number of days or even weeks sometimes. I, I would add that, I mean, you mentioned cyber insurance. That's something that we've seen drive a lot of activity just in our business over the last, um, I'll say, 12 months here. Um, you know, cyber insurance is something that was almost kind of, I mean, for the insurance industry, it was, it was, it was, it was kind of a boon because you know, prior to ransomware, it was just something that these businesses were paying and they never really had to pay out. But now with the, the influx or the increase in ransomware, we're seeing that um, the insurance companies and their underwriters are really taking a hard look at, like, is, is this healthy for a business? And what do we have to change to, in order to turn this business segment around? So we're seeing rates go up. We're seeing a lot more stringent requirements on, on the cyber insurance uh, company's behalf around what controls that they're actually requiring these organizations to uh, put in place before they'll even insure them. So we're seeing these rates, some, I mean, I've seen rates go sometimes 2x as much as 8x in some cases. And then they're also requiring that they shore up their security hygiene and implement some tools, implement some processes, 24 by 7 SOC, and so on. Yeah, I'll jump in too. The, um, the cost of downtime, you know, Alan talked about the cost of recovery, but there's also that whole span between when you first go down, you don't have access to your data, and then when you have access to it again. We talked at the very beginning about what is ransomware, and one of the ways I like to frame it, coming from a disaster recovery background, is ransomware is a disaster. I think that's one of the slides up here even. Because over the last three years, running a disaster recovery as a service practice, we have seen the number of disasters we have responded to over the last decade of being a leader in DRAS space is ransomware attacks. And your cyber insurance providers are a lot happier to pay for that faster recovery into a disaster recovery landing zone than they are to pay a ransom or to pay you know, for all of those other components. So having those pieces in place has really been a cost savings for the organizations that had them, but I would say that cost of that downtime. So I think I mentioned 21 days is the average, right? For someone who has a tested plan in place, it's a day, maybe two days, depending on how much data you've got, depending on what all you've got to do. But your critical data is often back up in hours if you've got a tested plan to, that is immutable, that's air gap, that's, that's planned for that kind of disaster. 
That's a huge difference. It is a huge difference. to a day or a few hours? A few hours, yeah. 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 Uh, it, another cost aspect uh, has got to be the reputational risk and reputational damage, right? What, what things have you guys seen when it comes to companies that you're aware of, and you don't have to name the companies, but that took a huge reputational risk because they weren't there when their customers needed them? That's a, a tough one. Uh, a lot of the work that, that, that I've been involved in has been uh, government or municipality related, so it's a little, little different uh, there. I'd almost flip that around a little bit, is reputational damage is really hard to measure, right? It's there, we know it's there, we know it's a challenge, but we also, and we've seen this over time, we know that it comes back. The reputation comes back. And so I think there's almost a false sense of security in the fact that, yeah, Target was breached, I still show up at Target. And so there's almost a, a flashpoint there to say, yeah, it matters, but it doesn't matter that much. And that's easy to say if you're not the one who has to actually deal with what happens in the event or if you're not the one who has to write the checks to pay for the event. So I think there's a little bit of a false sense of security there in that it always springs back, but for a little while, it's bad. In that being bad, too, I think the other thing we've seen from a cost perspective is the, uh, the cost of the human resource in a disaster. We've seen organization after organization where they get hit with an incident they weren't prepared for, and the IT staff says, I told you. Why didn't you do anything? And they throw up their hands and they go find another job. And you end up with organizations that don't have their you know, well-qualified network guy, security guy, wh whoever it was that walked out, and then they've still got to go fix this incident. So there's now a cost of that actual human resource at play as well. Yeah, yeah. Israel, I know you're from Minneapolis, so I'm going to put you on the spot since Alan mentioned the T word, target. It's, it's every presenter's favorite uh, example of a, of a hack, right? Um, how long do you think their reputation took a hit as a result of this? Just, I, I know it's layman, you're not, in the, you're not a PR firm, but I, I just know from being in the area. Well, I mean, I'll say it, it's a small community, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think we, everybody in the office knows somebody that was working at Target at that time. And mm -hmm. it, was, it was all hands on deck. And I think it was uh, it was really game changing. I think for the whole industry in general because it just opened a lot of eyes to the repercussions of a breach. Um, I don't know how long. I mean, I, I don't know if I could speak to how long it really took them to recover from that. I mean, I, it was it was in the news at least for six months to a year, right? And. To touch on another point, I think you get. I think we've talked about a little bit, or we've mentioned a little bit in terms of like ransomware and just really what it is. I think one thing that doesn't get mentioned a lot is when ransomware happens or when your systems are encrypted. People don't necessarily think about um, the fact that the attackers—they're generally in your systems, you know, much for a long time. You know, sometimes. Yeah, weeks, sometimes months before they actually you know, hit the button, right, to encrypt the systems, and in that time they're doing reconnaissance. They're trying to they're, they're trying to navigate laterally through the environment, trying to understand what is out there, what information is potentially sensitive that they can get access to, what systems they might have access to. They're looking for the backup environments. They're going to try to delete the backups if they have access to it. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff that happens before the ransomware event. And I think that's re it's really important to understand and I think that's why like this, this full breadth approach, this ransomware protection as a service approach that you guys have here is really powerful because it makes sure that you're protected not just from a single aspect but also you're looking at that entire life cycle. And, and that's a great segue into my next question. You think we might have rehearsed this. Um, but that was a question that they, they weren't ready for. So um, when you think about the alternatives to ransomware protection as a service, uh, you can go out and you can obtain these services, 
you know, from, from various different companies. Um, and you can try to build it yourself internally. So what are the challenges that you've seen businesses face when they try to do it themselves and do it internally? Any one of you. Who wants to go first? Adam? I think the biggest one right at the get-go is the time. They think, hey, I can throw you know half a head count at this thing, train them up, put the right technology in place. But we talk people, process, and technology. And what never happens is they never build the process around doing that. Whether we're talking about, um, you know, a sim ability to, to manage and, and respond to things, or that we're talking about doing disaster recovery testing and building disaster recovery playbooks, or we're talking about building risk assessments from a VCSO's perspective, running tabletop exercises and understanding that. All of that takes a ton of time. It takes time not only to have training, but to build process and have those people who can respond to those things. So it comes back to those, those three pillars of people, process, and technology, I think. Can I pick on that a little bit? So, so I think I talked a little bit about technology earlier. And I think technology has been great, and there's been a lot of advancements, like I said before. But I think it's also provided a false sense of security to organizations. Um, Adam, you, I mean, you summed it up really well. It's people, process, and technology. And I think these organizations, or a lot of organizations, they go procure the technology, but they don't necessarily have the people in place or the operational uh, aspects in place to really run and operate that technology. And I think that's where a lot of organizations have fallen short. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll jump on the end of that. I mean, technology usually isn't the thing that fails. Uh, it's usually a people or a process issue. And, and, you know, again, going back to some of the incidents that we've worked, some of the hardest discussions is when we go in and, you know, the environment is melting, for want of a better term, and you have an IT director or a CIO that says, we just bought this stuff. How could this have happened? And, you know, we're there to say the stuff wasn't the thing that caused the problem. And, you know, a perfect example, we had a, a municipality uh, a year or two back whose 911 system was encrypted. So, one, they had the, what I like to call, head in the sand mentality. This will never happen to us. We're a little municipality. Who's going to care about this? So much so that they never backed up the 911 system. So, what that meant in that county is if you called, if you had chest pains or you had an issue, they still were going to come help you, but it was going to take 15 to 20 minutes longer because all the automated system that makes that happen, that when you call in, it looks up where you live and it dispatches and all that thing had to be handwritten and you know, manipulated. And the, the, what was really interesting there was that the threat actor didn't come after the 911 system, it was just vulnerable. So when we actually got into the stage where we were negotiating with the threat actor and they lowered the price of the ransomware when they found out that it was potentially life-threatening. So interesting stuff. The CIO at that org was blown away that it could have happened to them because one, it, nobody would care about what they had and two, they had just bought a bunch of gear that was supposed to protect them. They still didn't have any dedicated security people on staff. And they, when I asked them for their incident response plan, they all looked at each other and pointed fingers. Yeah. So. Well, and, and you mentioned one of the keys that, that I think also uh, companies can struggle with, finding the people to, that, that are skilled in this. Um, as as you're out and about, what what is the market for attracting and retaining cybersecurity professionals? It's pretty cutthroat these days. <laughs> I mean, honestly, uh, these are skills that are in demand, partially because the threat actors are are being so so successful that that you know people you know we need more and more of these these skills and. 
they're not, uh, these are not simple issues. We can sit here and say, and NIST is identify, protect, detect, blah, blah, blah. And that's good. And I'm a big believer in the NIST cybersecurity framework. But there's a lot more under the covers that make these things work. So you can't really spin up a good security analyst in six months. This takes time and effort. And the challenge that we see with a, a lot of organizations is if they'll take the time, they train the people, they get them up to speed, and then they get a better job offer and they go somewhere else. Uh, and then you lose continuity, you lose institutional knowledge. And, and that's really, really challenging for a lot of people to be able to maintain that yeah. staffing. Yeah. Anything from a staffing perspective, Adam Isler, that you want to add to what Alan said? I think the experience of actually responding to incidents is another hard thing to find. Wow. You know, someone who's worked on Alan's team, who's had those conversations multiple times with lots and lots of cyber insurance providers, who's worked on my team doing disaster recovery, and has responded to multiple incidents and seen all of the different ways, all of those things that you can get from that experience, that is really hard to find mm -hmm. um, in a single individual. And then there's just the, the number of hours that you need to really cover an organization. These don't happen, uh, no one pushes the button at uh, five o'clock in the morning, right before everybody rolls into the office. It's at the end of the day, usually before a weekend or a holiday, it mm -hmm. is when there is no traffic in that environment and nobody's yeah. watching. Yeah. Um, and that is nine times out of 10 when Alan's getting a call, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that talent shortage is real. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think last I looked, there was over 3 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs just in the US alone. And I mean, I think we as an industry have to do a lot um, earlier stage to really cultivate like interest and talent from you know local colleges and municipalities, like just really build up or shore up that talent gap. But mm -hmm. to, to, to your guys's point, um, you know, most organizations just aren't equipped to to one hire people, but then let alone if they even get them on board, like how do they actually retain them for more than six months, 12 months, a year, two, year, two years, right? Because we're seeing a lot of people jumping ship after they build up their skills and they can go, you know, mm -hmm. to another organization for sometimes 40, 50% more. It's just a constant challenge. Yeah. The, the jumping ship, is, it's, it's hard because once you get them trained, they're, they're a lot more valuable. So InterVision was one of the first in is still one of the leading companies in this as-a-service model. Uh, they began, as, as Adam mentioned, in the disaster recovery as a service space. So to the group, what are some of the benefits of using the as-a-service model as opposed to either full outsourcing or the more traditional uh, doing it internally? What are some of the benefits? Big surprise, it's money. All right, that's <laughs> one of the first ones. Uh, yeah, Gardner says 40 to 60% um, savings by going with the as-a-service model. You know, as we talk about disaster recovery or ransomware protection as a service, the people, the process, the technology, the equipment, all of that costs a lot of money and a lot of investment to do it yourself. If you hire someone who's got the experience, who's got the uh, ability to retain that staff, and who's already got the processes in place, it's gonna save you money. Yeah, I would j just expand on that piece. I mean, in, in what you said, the people, I think, is a huge part. So going back to the previous conversation, it's hard to keep that staff. Organizations that are running as a service, let them do that. You know, let them have that staff, and they can keep those people focused. One of the challenges for a lot of the orgs that we work with is the security guy is also the guy who has to reset passwords and fix printers, right? And so, one, if they become good at security, they don't want to reset passwords and fix printers anymore. Uh, or they're so inundated with all those tasks that they can't get good at doing security. So by going to an as-a-service type of mod, you know, model, uh, you move that to say, I'm gonna have all of my specialists outsourced to that area. You, Mr. You know, outsourcer, you, you, as a service folks, you maintain those people, you keep them trained, you, you, know, you take care of them, I don't have to worry about that. 
I think that I think the partnership aspect is really critical here too. Um, you know, if you find the right partner, partner with uh, the right type of talent, the right type of vision, it can really help you scale and scale much faster. Um, one of the things that I was really blown away by uh, as I came on board here at Arctic Wolf was just seeing how we operated our own internal security team and just the different aspects that each team individually uh, focused on. And you know, just to give like a brief example, you know, we see you know, vulnerability bulletins kind of go out almost almost daily. Sometimes you, know, you have multiple vulnerabilities get released or announced you know, per day. But you know, the reality is um, there's so many of them that you know, organizations don't know what to focus on for one. And, you know, there was one last week that um, it, it affected Fortinet devices. And I thought it was really interesting because if you look at the vulnerability or the CVE from Fortinet, it said that they had, they had only one instance of that vulnerability being, um, being utilized in the public. And as our team was digesting this and doing their own research uh, across our customer base, they found multiple instances of this vulnerability already being utilized. So just being able to have that scale behind you, because you know, when you have a small team, you're not going to have visibility of things like that. And I think that, that to me, like really underscored the value that a provider can bring. Yeah. Well, well, let's do talk uh, ransomware protection as a service, specifically RPAS. Why RPAS? And, and before we get to, to why, what is RPAS, ransomware protection as a service? What are the components? I think the product manager should uh, answer I'll, that one. I'll take that. <laughs> You'll let me have that. Okay. So we talked a lot at the beginning of this conversation around the fact that uh, ransomware is a disaster. There, we all have probably heard that enough times, but we've probably hammered it in the ground, that ransomware is a problem. That is the first big problem you want to try and fix. But the other problem we found is that it is really, really hard to solve that problem just by saying there's the NIST cybersecurity framework. Let's put people, process, and technology over that and somehow fix it, right? And so I met Alan about a year ago. We started working together, and from an incident response standpoint, all of these things he was working on to, to understand how to respond to those attacks. And the biggest gap of what he's able to deliver from an incident response standpoint seemed to be, where are their backups? How do they recover? What is their recovery plan? You know, and then knowing what actually got into the system. If they didn't already have endpoint protection and SIM tools in place and someone actually doing those, we needed some kind of a security model. And so we had already been partnering with Arctic Wolf and it really made sense that all three of those components, the recovery side, the VCSO advisement and maturity security posture side, and the security um, monitoring tools from that Arctic Wolf brought together needed to come together and needed to actually work together to help solve that second problem of how do you put people, process, and technology into the NIST cybersecurity framework and build a defense matrix that actually makes sense, sits on all of those deeper controls that Alan was mentioning. And that became what is our paths today. So we believe it is the most comprehensive approach and it's not just a combination of those three things because when you have an incident response team and a recovery team and a security platform that can understand what's happening in that environment, working together, their ability to respond to an event now becomes exponentially faster. I know in those conversations with Alan, we had seen events where the recovery team and the security team were from two separate companies. They were both trying to handle a response to an event. They didn't have NDAs in place to talk to each other. And they were two separate companies. And sometimes we're waiting 10 hours to literally push a button that recovered a client in 10 minutes. Um, and so having those teams who know each other, know how to work together, and then know what the capabilities of are the, of those teams. 
So like with anything, the more you practice it, the better you get, right? And so with all of those practices that we have together, we wanna build, for, um, we wanna test, we wanna practice together to get better at responding to those things. So tabletops with the VCSO and utilizing the data that we have from the Arctic Wolf platform, build what we call disaster recovery plays that we actually go through and test and test the different recovery capabilities into disaster recovery landing zones. So all three components start to work together, the people, the process, and the technology of Arctic Wolf, VCSO, and disaster recovery and backup as a service. Anyone, anyone want to add to that? There was kind of a mic drop. I think he did an awesome job. I mean, uh, the, the only thing that I would add is, I mean, a couple of things to pull out of that, that just to sort of solidify, are the things like the tabletops. Those are the things that people just don't do, right? Mm -hmm. So if you say, when's the last time you did a tabletop exercise? Everybody doesn't make eye contact, right? And, and so that's been one of the things that I and my team have done more and more and more over this last couple of years because people are realizing we need to practice our incident response. One, we may not have an incident response built. Uh, if we do, have we tested it? And when I mean tested, I don't mean let's go pull wires and actually break the network, but we need to have people from legal, from marketing, from executive team involved in testing this thing so everybody in the org understands the gravity and understands their role on what they're supposed to do. That's just an example of the kind of thing that we want to instill into this sort of RPAS practice because it's not really about responding to an event, it's making sure that the event is not gonna happen, but if it does, we're super prepared to deal with it if it does. So those kinds of things are, are being injected into this along with all of the other nuanced things like the backups and the testing. One of the things that we talk about a lot, I'm surprised you didn't hit on this, is the fact that in an event of a ransomware event, we've got a crime scene at that point in time. If you just restore your data back onto the server that was compromised, you just wiped out the crime scene. I've got no data for forensics. I can't do an investigation. So part of our DRAS solution allows us to get you back up into business while still leaving the capability for us to do investigation and forensics. And I've been on the other end of enough phone calls with lawyers when that didn't happen that you don't want to have to deal with that. So that's another instance that people just don't really consider uh, that we uncover those sorts of processes and put them into place. I'd say that's spot on. Um, the other thing I'll say is that it's never for lack of trying. I mean, I see, a, I mean, uh, most of the organizations we work with, everybody is just so inundated with just trying to manage or just to keep up with their day to day. Um, and it's not that they don't want to do these things. They don't, it's not that they don't want to do tabletop exercises or, or work on these strategic initiatives, but they just don't have the time of the day. All right, so now's the scary part. We talked about ransomware being scary. I'm gonna go down there and take questions from the audience. I thought about crowd surfing, but I figured they'd probably throw me out if I, if I really did that. So I'm gonna use the stairs, but think about your questions. I have a prize for the first person that answers, sorry, that asks a question. Hold on just a second. So we don't get a prize if we're the first one to answer. I just want no. to be clear. All right. so no money in it. Just... Now the prize is a book, and no, it's not one of mine. Okay, it's a strategy to reality. It's about using business architecture to launch your strategy. It's written by a dear friend of mine and a recent podcast guest, uh, Wendy King. So. First one with a question gets a copy of the book. All right, there you are. Yes, Jill. So, you know, with an understanding that this discussion is, uh, you know, we're talking a lot about reactions, reactions to issues, and the goal is to be proactive. Um, mentioned a couple things, uh, the cost of a breach, and then you also mentioned, like, hey, we have all this stuff. How does this happen? 
So I think this is all about a conversation at the business level. How do you get your business leadership to understand the cost of those breaches, the concerns, and how you can proactively address that prior to something bad happening? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And that's a real struggle, right? So the technology team can jump up and down all day and say, we need to make improvements. But if you can't get business leadership engaged, then you can't execute. So one of the things that I and my team specifically try to do with that is we try to do things that inform and educate and hopefully engage leadership and executives. So uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm a big proponent of is security awareness and training. But also, I believe it gets done wrong a lot of the time. So people that come at you with a big hammer and say, you've got to do this training once a year and it's going to take three hours and blah, 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 that's not very effective. So little bits constantly fed and targeted. So you don't need this, the, the executives to hear the same story that you need uh, the, the administrative staff to hear, for example. So understanding what matters to the executives, which oftentimes that's a financial discussion. So finding out what, what matters to them and speaking in those terms. We do things like security workshop engagements where we ask to have not that many technical people in the room, but more business leaders, department leaders, who can come and we, we do education and awareness and talk about what happens in these events and why it affects a business. Because I've yet to be a part of one of these response activities where the CFO, the CEO, or the administrator of the facility didn't have to be involved. You don't get to wipe your hands and say, well, that's an IT problem when it happens. So if we can make them understand and get them engaged with that up front, uh, it's much better. It is a challenge, and it's not a challenge, by the way, because these people don't want to know or because they don't get it. They're not technical. This isn't a technical problem. This is a business problem. They're busy, and so it's just one more thing that's getting thrown at them. So if we can find a crack and start a dialogue and educate them and get them engaged, we're much more successful. I feel like that's changed, or starting to change, though. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, more and more so, a lot of these conversations are becoming business conversations. And, I mean, we're starting to see a lot of visibility at the board level, even. And, you know, I've started seeing reports that, um, you know, to expect executive-level compensation or KPIs to evolve over the next four to five years, even, to involve cybersecurity risk um, scores and posture um, and to really, you know, um, align you know everybody from the board to the executive level down on making sure that you know, the organization is protected i want to jump off of that because the cyber risk maturity assessment i think is key to having that conversation and understanding um, the business case and there's actually a qr code that pops up here if you are interested in that we offer a free cyber risk maturity assessment as part of our pass to help you understand an organization's both their risk profile as well as uh, kind of the costs of what a breach looks like for their specific size organization in the industry they're in. Uh, it really helps actually have that conversation with data that it is significantly more quantitative than just, uh, you know, I feel like this is a risk. because. In the studies we've run and other studies we've read, um, everyone agrees that ransomware is a risk, right? Everyone agrees that cyber threat's real, but not everybody always agrees that that impacts me. And a lot of people want to have, uh, you know, kind of plot armor blinders on of this isn't going to happen to me because I'm the main character of my own story until it does. And I think Alan shared some really great stories about where that's happened. But, but that actually comes out in the data as well, in the studies that we've, we've interviewed is, hey, I really believe this is a big problem, rate that high. Do I think this affects me? No, I don't. And those numbers come back pretty consistently across the board um, from leaders, so, yeah. 
I, I do I do want to say the, the thing that you said, I 100% I agree with. I think there's a little bit of a trickle down that still has to happen, yes. right? So that that culture and, and a lot of that's going to come down from, from you know, regulatory items too, right? So we're seeing that more from the government just in like notification. You can no longer sit on a breach, right? If you do, then you personally can be you can be you know, held accountable for that. So that's going to force some of that to trickle down into the org. Uh, so I think that's a, you know, a really important concept, but we may not quite be there yet. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's a place that we need to get to. Another question? Yes. Thanks, Jeff. I'm I'm not an IT guy. I'm an accounting, but uh, I've probably been doing computer backups for 40 years. I've never tested a backup to see if it's good. How often should you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. I would suggest that if you've never tested it, right away, first of all, and <laughs> make sure it actually works. Go home tonight. Oh, uh, yeah. But we recommend about once every six months that an organization tests their recovery capabilities. And whether that's just a simple data backup or whether that's actually a recovery into a secondary disaster recovery zone um, in a much bigger kind of footprint. You want to be running through those tests. You want to understand what your plan is for getting back to that data, back to those tools if something happens to them. And just like Alan mentioned with the, you know, it becomes a crime scene. When ransomware or wiperware or something like that is in place, you usually cannot do that back into the production environment. So not only having a tested backup, but having a safe place where you can recover that data and even look for indicators of compromise if you've got great tools in place like Arctic Wolf. Um, but yeah. All right, any other questions from the audience? Yes. So as, as IT leaders, one of our focuses is obviously testing what systems we have in place and are they working. Pen testing is one of our go-tos for that most of the time. If we switch to an as-a-service solution, what do you guys use to make sure that your solution actually works and what assurance do we have that it's being tested? So, so we're gonna we're gonna tag team this one. So, uh, one thing is we're big believers in pen testing, uh, and that's part of the service that that uh, we recommend for things like our risk assessments. We like to look look at the environment from a couple of different views. One of them is pen testing, but that's only one view of the environment, right? So, there's other things we'd want to look at as well. Uh, as part of that. Uh, I've got uh, a team that, that I work with that's been doing pen testing with us for a, a really long time. One of the issues that we ran into was they would come in and do your pen test, you know, your annual pen test today. That's a snapshot where you are today. Next week, you might have an issue. We don't know what changed. We don't know if anything changed. So the challenge that our team saw, and we hated this, was we'd have a customer call two, three weeks after we did a pen test and say, well, we got breached. And the challenge was we didn't know if something had changed after that pen test had been done or if they'd remediated the issues appropriately. So one of the things that we did was we built out a solution that we call Red Spy 365. You can Google it. Uh, it's a continuous penetration testing service, so it's on all the time, 24-7, 365. And what that helps us do is we do the testing, but then we leave it on. So we're constantly scanning your environment, looking for new things that pop up, looking for vulnerabilities. So if, for example, there was a misconfigured firewall, you know, hole, hole poked in the firewall, we find it on the pen test. In the old model, we would say, there's a hole in your firewall, please fix it. And then you may or may not fix it appropriately, but we wouldn't know until we tested a year from now. With the continuous pen testing, you're going to say, I fixed it tomorrow. We're going to, we're going to be cont continuously testing, and we'll say, yeah, you did fix it, or nope, it's still wide open. So we found that service to be very appealing uh, to our customers, for one thing. Uh, the other thing about it is that we were able to build it in such a way that it cost just about as much or about the same amount to do it continuously as it does to do the one-offs. So we were able to make it fairly cost-effective as well. Now, as far as our service, I'm going to pivot over to Adam. 
Thanks, Alan. Yeah, so on top of that, we do all of the testing we already talked about, right? The, the tabletop exercises, working with Arctic Wolf and getting the data, and then doing disaster recovery tests based off of those actual ransomware type attacks. Uh, but on top of that, we have service level agreements that put actual money back into you know, the, the risk profile from our perspective of saying, hey, we're gonna meet or beat these certain goals to be able to ensure that you know we're protecting your data. Uh, so right off the bat, we've got five SLAs. Three of them are kind of what you would expect from standard MSP type SLAs. They're uptime, uh, response time type SLAs, but two of them I believe are really unique. And one of them is that in the event of a ransomware attack, we're actually going to provide you with an incident response team and uh, your disaster recovery team working together. And that VCSO actually becomes that incident co coordinator of the actual incident response. So we are in the, um, in the trenches with an organization that's actually been impacted. So we are financially incentivized not to ever let that happen, but in the case of it actually happening, we're going to also make sure we've got a plan in place where we can bring you back up quickly. The second one is a actual recovery time to objective. Um, most disaster recovery as a service plans have some kind of RTO, uh, but it's broad. It's how long does it take to power on the machines, and uh, it's gonna have all kinds of fine print that basically wipes out the effect of actually the data being usable or ransomware affecting it. We're gonna actually test ransomware-based scenarios. So we're not only gonna test off of what it takes to turn on your machines, we're gonna test what it takes that team to then go look for indicators of compromise in your disaster recovery landing zone. And we're gonna build plans, different plays into that recovery book that provide you with service level agreements on how fast we can recover different recovery waves based off of the different types of attacks that we have tested together. So not only are we testing it, then we're putting an actual number within an SLA that we're gonna meet in that incident response. Excellent. Well, on Status Go, we are all about action. We love to leave our listeners with a solid call to action. So I have one last question for each of you, and that is, What's one thing our audience or our listeners can do tomorrow because they listen to us today? So who wants to go first? One action that you would recommend they do tomorrow? I'll take the easy one is go take the cyber risk maturity assessment. It is free and you get a security expert to help walk you through that and walk through the results to help you understand uh, understand your results and basically show you um, where you're at in your cyber risk journey. That's pretty easy to do. So I'll take uh, the, the, the next easiest one. I thought you were going to steal this one, uh, but I'd ask that guy in the back to go do his backup uh, recovery testing. Uh, and everybody else, honestly, uh, in that event, uh, to Adam's point, when my team was doing incident management and we weren't coupled with these guys, the hardest part of the scramble for us was where are the backups and how can we recover them? And, when, and we had to learn whatever that system was on the fly and learn how to do it. And some of the most daunting issues were when we found out that they hadn't backed up for six months or they hadn't tested the recovery for six to eight months. And then we had to sit down with, with that business or that organization and say, we can get you back, but it's gonna be like getting you back back in uh, you know, April or May. Uh, so testing those backups is really important. And that's really common, by the way, to be uh, in the position of saying, I back up all the time, but I haven't tested it. So you're not alone. Uh, it's just uh, a really important task to do. Um, I'll leave you guys with this, and I think this is really important. Um, you know, I, I've said it before, like it's less of a technology problem today, but I'll emphasize the other aspect is find the right people to partner with. Find people that you're comfortable working with. Find people that you can partner with. And I mean, that, that's a two-sided equation. So, you know, I wouldn't go sign up with somebody that, and just trust that you're just gonna be secure. 
make sure that you find a partner that's willing to work with you side by side to advance that security posture over time. Excellent actions. I want you all to do them tomorrow. I'm going to leave you with an action of my own. Listen to Status Go. How's that? Uh, in all seriousness, will you join me in thanking our panelists uh, tonight? Uh, round of applause for our panelists, please. For our live audience, if you want to learn more, grab one of the three of these guys uh, yet tonight. We're going to be here till 7 o'clock with the food, the drink. So hang around, try to grab one of them. If you can't get a hold of one of them, there's other InterVision and Arctic Wolf folks here. You want to raise your hands, InterVision and Arctic Wolf. Uh, several folks out there, you can grab one of them and talk about this uh, as well. To our listeners listening to this on the recording, if you want to learn more, visit intervision.com. We'll have show notes and we'll provide links to our paths. We'll provide links to Arctic Wolf uh, and you'll be able to also follow up in that way. I really want to thank you all for coming tonight and I want to thank you for your great questions and for uh, just being here and being a part of this. It means a lot to me personally that you're here. To our, our listeners on the recording, as always, thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find InterVision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.